Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Danny McVitie, Dr. Danny McVitie, who co-founded the Lap of Love Veterinary Hospice. The veterinarian Tampa native McVitie launched Lap of Love with a fellow vet, Dr. Mary Gardner, in 2009. It's since become the nation's largest network dedicated to end-of-life veterinary care, operating in some 34 states. McVitie has been on the show twice before, first in 2012, discussing lap of love and a myriad of relevant issues. And today, likely topics include aging pets and how to care for them, veterinarian burnout, generally and especially among those working in hospice care, and more broadly, the concerning issue of suicide within the ranks of veterinarians and more. We'll explore those topics when I speak with Dr. Danny McVitie in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. And later in today's program, I'll speak briefly with Hillsborough State Attorney Andrew Warren about the prison sentence recently announced for felony fraud charges against Albert Adams, the former CEO of the nonprofit organization Soaring Paws. Adams was on probation for a previous Soaring Paws fraud conviction when the new charges were brought prompting the judge to impose a stiff sentence of 15 months in prison and 10 years of probation. More on this later in today's show. Right now, though, let's discuss end-of-life veterinary care and related topics with Dr. McVitie. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Dr. Danny McVitie on Talk Animals. Good morning, Dr. McVitie. Good morning, Duncan. It's so good to be here with you again. Yeah, thanks for uh, coming back and spending some time with us on Talking Animals. So, yeah, this is our third time chatting on the show. And as you know, I have some topics in mind for today that we haven't discussed in those past conversations. But I think we'd also be remiss if we didn't provide something of an overview first of Lap of Love, how it works, and the services offered. Uh, It's always possible there's someone listening who may be reaching that sort of devastating crossroads where their beloved dog or cat or other pet is seriously ill, maybe contending with a criminal condition or grappling with what to do next. So talk for a minute or two or or longer, obviously, about Lap of Love. I mean, who better to describe it than the person who co-founded it and runs it right now? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I I started Lap of Love in in 2009, like you said, here in Tampa. Um, I was doing emergency medicine at the time at a veterinary emergency group um, uh, on Bears Avenue and doing emergency medicine and found myself just kind of tapping back into some of the skills I learned as a hospice volunteer when I was in college. And I just loved helping people through that that end of life care decision and the experience of it. I know it sounds weird, but you know, we'll touch on that throughout this discussion. Um, but Start a Lap of Love had no idea what it was going to turn into. Not a clue that there were other veterinarians that felt the way that I did about end of life care and just the honor that you feel in helping people through it. And long story short, you know, it went from just me here in Tampa and then Mary joined and now here we are 12 years later and we have almost 200 doctors that work with us around the country and we help anywhere from six to 7,000 families per month um, in the United States um, with the end of life care of, of their pet. So it's, it's awesome. It's been an amazing journey. Um, you know, and, and families just, they, you can just, you know, type in lapoflove.com um, or Google it and, and it's, it's pretty easy to, to find us. Um, and we have, gosh, here in Tampa, we have now nine full-time doctors that help um, of quite a few hundred families per month. And it's just such an honor to do it. Yeah, well, no, it's really uh, taken off in, in a big way, just underscoring, I think, the need for people to have a different, better way when the horrible time comes to have to say goodbye to their pet. But let's back up a little bit as you kind of scooted through your uh, background a little bit. When you were doing emergency medicine, 
and you said that you kind of responded well or, or didn't have too much of a problem, at least, with this exact kind of work with the end-of-life veterinary care. Why do you think that was? For you know, some people, that might be surprising or might be something they would, if they were a vet or, or, or vet student, say, well, that's something I, I'd kind of want to stay away from, maybe. Yeah, it, it is. And that, that's, that's a common phrase that I hear is, you know, it, I, I, I wanted to be a veterinarian also, but I just couldn't see animals in pain or I couldn't euthanize them. And, you know, when, when you look at it, waking your way through veterinary school, you obviously have to see animals in pain, but we're there to learn how to make them better. So we kind of come to grips with that. But then there's this other thing that I don't think most people are, are you know, expect of themselves when you get into veterinary medicine in any capacity is the the fulfillment that you get from relieving that pain and suffering. And sometimes, yeah, we can do an amazing, crazy, long surgery and we get that pet out, but watching animals recover from anesthesia and then deal with the pain that comes after and having to control that pain, you know, from the exterior, I mean, those animals can't tell us if they're in pain or not. You know, that, that's a whole different set of skills. But then there, there then becomes a skill of helping families through the end-of-life experience. And when you deliver a euthanasia in a compassionate, loving way, that really, I think, provides families something that they didn't expect. You know, when, when, they bring, when you bring your pet into an emergency practice, you expect that veterinarian to help you and to help your pet. And that's an expectation. That's not something that, you know, just because I just did a crazy, amazing surgery that, you know, I'm so proud of myself for doing as a veterinarian, the family doesn't always know how amazing that was that I, that I was able to do that, you know? Right. Veterinarians do like, I, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I was able to save this pet. I thought the pet was going to die, but I used my knowledge and the education that I have to save them. But you know, but but that's just an expectation of families. However, when you provide a peaceful euthanasia, again, it it really blows people away, and they are amazed at the compassion and they're there we receive a, a level of gratitude that we didn't expect to receive as a doctor and i think that at the end of the day that's that's really you know that's always my answer to families is is you know people when i walk into their homes they might say something like oh my gosh you know i can't imagine doing what you do but i look at them and, and i say it's an honor to be here and it's an it's an immense honor and i respect my work and what it means for you and, and your pet and therefore i go home and i know that i've done a good and additionally, these families give us these hugs and thank yous. I mean, imagine every single client that you interact with in, a, in any given day. Every single client gives you a hug with tears in their eyes and says thank you for what you do. I mean, that leaves you at the end of the day with a type of gratitude that I don't know any other job on the face of this earth except human hospice, <laughs> you know, that yeah. you get that type of gratitude for. So. You know, when we talk about burnout, just introducing that that topic in veterinary medicine, it's actually not euthanasia that burns doctors out. It is interacting with clients that don't have that type of, of level of gratitude or and or because there are a lot of people that do, obviously, but interacting with clients that maybe don't have the financial resources to help the pet in the way that we know we should. Yeah. So that, well, that's really the burnout. Well, let's circle around to that uh, a little bit later because I, I first just think kind of it might be helpful to so many people listening to still just get more of a, an overview of how a uh, lap of love works. And so let's say there's a hypothetical person with a hypothetical cat that has kidney disease. There have been subcutaneous fluids, et cetera, et cetera, but the cat is struggling. Other organs maybe are, are starting to not work well or shutting down even. Things do not look good. So in that situation, how would a lap of love sort of enter the picture typically? Yeah, so typically uh, they'd be at a veterinary clinic and then they would, somehow euthanasia would come up um, and then, you know, maybe the client says, 
can you come to my house? And doctors in general practices typically cannot do that. Sometimes they're able to, but a lot of times they're not. It just takes a certain level of of preparedness. You know, we have our cars are stocked. We're ready to go, you know, and, and we can deliver things in the home that you would typically deliver in a clinic. So normal, normally doctors can't do that from their own clinic, um, nor do they have the time. I mean, that's whole other conversation is just how busy veterinarians are these days. And there's not enough of us to go around. So, um, you know, so, so in, in that situation, somehow in-home euthanasia would have been brought up and then they would call us and we would schedule the appointment. And the vast majority of our appointments are scheduled with less than 24, 48 hours notice. Yeah. So whereas we may not be an emergency practice, we are definitely an urgent care model that clients can call us within a very short notice, get us. So um, in, in that sense, you know, we would we would arrive in the home and then on the phone, we do have a little bit of a conversation about whether or not this family wants hospice or whether or, whether or not they're ready for euthanasia. And, and then when we go into the home, then we help the family kind of come to that final decision. Um, very rarely, and I mean like I can count on one hand the number of times that I've walked in and in euthanasia hasn't been something that we needed to do in that moment. Because mm. um, you, you know, don't get that call uh <clears throat> Typically, unless it's pretty clearly there or darn close. Yes, that's when that's when families feel comfortable calling us. And not only that, but you know, our because we come to the home, we charge anywhere from two to three times what a doctor would charge in a clinic because it takes us two to three hours to travel to the family's home, be in the family's home, travel back or to the next appointment, and then with medical records. So our our charge is more than in a clinic for that reason. Sure, yeah. So the families that call us are the ones that just love their pet. It has nothing to do with money because what someone is able to afford and what they're willing to afford are two very different things. Sure. Veterinarian, you know? Yeah. It's not what someone can afford. It's what they're willing to pay. And families that are willing to pay an additional, you know, charge for in-home care, they love their pet. Their pet is family. They are the ones that just go above and beyond. And and again, that doesn't mean they're always going to spend a bunch of money on, you know, at the end of life of their of their pet. In fact, a lot most of our, our animals have not been to the veterinarian in a year or two before they call us. You know, because their pet's going downhill. So it's they they just they're waiting for that right time. So again, that's one other conversation. Yeah. But we go into the home, we you know, we discuss with the family if this is the right time or not, if if they're ready or not. And and again, most of the time they're they are extremely ready. I mean, there's never a time when the family has been ready to euthanize and it's not the right time. Sometimes I walk in and the family is clearly not ready and I never want to make somebody euthanize that isn't ready to euthanize because then that comes with a lot of guilt. Sure. So as long as I can keep their pet comfortable with some pain medicine and just keep them, you know, just keep them feeling okay for another day or week or sometimes it's, hey, we're trying to keep this pet comfortable until my kid can come home from college and be here so everyone can be together. You know, that's yeah. very frequently what happens. I see. Um, yeah. Yeah. So... Because that's the thing I was going to ask, and I think you sort of preemptively answered it, especially by noting that really by the time you or one of your colleagues was called, people are pretty certain that that it's time. Because otherwise, I was the question I had, too, that I think a lot of us have is that when an animal is ill, but maybe there's more of a gray area of, I know the animal's ill, but... Uh, and again, they can't tell us what kind of pain they're in. And I would never want to have one second of pain for this animal, of course. But also, I don't want to escort them to the to the Rainbow Bridge 
too soon either. That just seems like kind of a tricky area, but I would guess that's grappled with before, more, at least more frequently, before you guys uh, arrive. Yeah, and, and we have a really good team of, of people on the phone that, that help the families through that kind of that, that thought process. But then we also have a tele-advice service where families can talk to a doctor, um, even, even Zoom with the doctor mm. um, on the phone so, so we can help them through that decision-making process too. So, so yeah, I totally understand that. And the other thing that is important for families to understand is that there are different budgets, we call them. So there are four different budgets that we consider when we're looking at the quality of life of a pet and the quality of life of the family too, because you're right in my two year olds in the background here. So, well, that's, (laughs) that's fine. We're looking for everybody's input right now. So that's that's all good. Yeah. (laughs) He's got some input. Okay. Um, so there's four different budgets. Everyone understands the monetary budget, you know, the actual money budget. Yeah. Everyone gets that. But then there's, there's also the, um, physical budget. So, so maybe physically giving a pet medication is difficult for the family. You know, maybe, yeah, your, your kitty, you know, with renal failure can be, you know, perhaps stay alive for another couple of months, but you need to do subcutaneous fluids every single day, which is sticking a needle under their skin and giving them a bunch of fluids. People don't want to do that or they can't do that. Yeah. So that's, a, that's an important part of, of the decision-making process. But then there's also the time. So maybe you don't have time to do nursing care on your pet. Sure, I can keep your pet alive for another six months, but you are literally going to have to be there with him every single day and administer medication every hour or whatever. Yeah. You know, that's not possible for the vast majority. In fact, I don't know anybody that that's possible for. But then the last budget, and this is the most important, is the emotional budget. There are a lot of, and this is a very, very frequent thing that that families have to grapple with, is that sometimes emotionally holding on to your pet for a long time is is just wrecking you. And a lot of times these pets have belonged to a spouse that passed away or a child that committed suicide or died in a wreck or, I mean, these things that if I keep talking about them, I'll start crying again. Yeah, no. Like these animals mean so much to these people. And sometimes dragging out the process is emotionally incredibly draining for them. And in that sense, it is very rare that there's one moment in time when it's the right time to euthanize. There's there's rather, there's a broad time range when yeah. it's an appropriate time to euthanize. And some people like to make the decision at the very beginning of that time frame. You know, look, I've, and they'll, and they'll tell me a lot of times it's, it's, it's a story of, I drew it out too long last time. The last time I went through this with my pet, I did all the things I was supposed to do. I went to the oncologist. I did all this. I did that. And it was a six, it was a, Sorry. <laughs> it was a six month process of just dragging this out emotionally. And I don't want to do that this time. Yeah. You know, that's a really common story that I hear. So those four budgets, the monetary time, physical and emotional, all those things go into putting together the quality of life of the pet and of the family so that we can kind of come to a decision that is the right time. And again, there's some people like to make it at the beginning of that time frame and some like to drag it out to the very, very, very end. And there's not a one, you know, there, there, there's not a, a one answer for any of them. Every, every family gets to have, you know, their own range of when it's appropriate. Right. All you can do, I guess, is, or the people on the phones even initially, is sort of take in some information, suggest some scenarios, and give them some options, including, I guess, the timetables that would be helpful in this case, yeah. coupled with their own history, like you say, which uh, I'm sure would alter those timetables. Um, exactly right. 
And, and, you know, an important thing to remember for everybody is that euthanasia isn't just about stopping suffering that's occurring in that moment, but rather preventing suffering from occurring at all. So sometimes people like to wait until the very, very end, or they'll say things to me like, when he's suffering, then I'll call you. And I'm like, no, 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 don't wait. Don't wait until then. Yeah. That's going to happen at two o'clock in the morning, which is why I started Lapa Up in the first place, so that you don't have to have that type of experience. Call me sooner. Let's talk about it. And let's set a game plan so that you aren't rushing to the emergency room. Because cops don't like it when I rush through stop signs and red lights. And I'm sure. <laughs> and also, the, I would think the uh, additional factor among many uh, in there, Dr. McVitie, is that uh, some animals, uh, it's easier to tell uh, when they're in pain or when they're when they are suffering. And and again, once once you see that, then you're you're clearly too late. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, or or you know, there have been times when I've walked into homes and I and I can see the fact that this pet is suffering already, and I'm literally telling families like, let me let me go ahead and give this medication, and then I'll talk you through everything that just happened. Yeah, you know, wanting to do that quickly, but. You know, and that's the thing that everybody says is, quote, I just don't want him to suffer. And I think we also have to remember that euthanasia is like an epidural for death, right? So death is going to happen whether or not we step in with euthanasia or not. And we're all going to die. You know, we're all technically kind of dying right now. We're in the process of dying every minute, right? So euthanasia is just simply a mechanism that we have in veterinary medicine that helps the process of dying happen in a way that is without pain. It literally is like going under for anesthesia, but just not waking back up. So just like an epidural is the, you know, the process of birth is going to happen whether or not we step in with an epidural or not, it's, it's going to happen. So an an epidural just simply makes that process a little bit nicer and prettier without any pain. Yeah. And I think the, I think the baby has a few things to say about birth and some of the other things too. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I think that's that's super important, and and again, I think it's it's a it's a philosophy that uh, is so important to embrace. And the other thing too, uh, actually, let me just first say it to people who might just be tuning in and just hearing part of this conversation. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you did just tune in, my guest is Dr. Danny McVitie, Tampa native and co-founder of Lap of Love Veterinary Hospice, what's become the nation's largest network dedicated to end of life veterinary care. If you'd like to ask Dr. McVitie a question uh, about your circumstance, your pet, uh, past situation, whatever, or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. Yeah, so what I was starting to say there is also, uh, in terms of some history, I mean, some people, the last time they maybe did lose an animal, either maybe the, maybe lap of love didn't exist, or they didn't know that it existed, and so... They just felt like, well, we're going to do this at the vet's office because I don't know that there's any alternative. Mm-hmm. So, um, No, you're right. I, I still hear from people, I had no idea this existed. I, I had no idea. And it breaks my heart, you know, because people m- may have wanted it to be done as well. You get booked up really quickly, you know, and that just goes to one of the topics, you know, you and I had talked about before is just the burnout in veterinary medicine and there's a shortage of veterinarians right now and, you know, everybody, every clinic could hire another doctor. Yeah. If, if it's so we're constantly 
trying to get ahead of and and hire as, as many amazing team members as possible so that we don't book up and we can be very responsive. Yeah. Quick. So that, that reminds me then a couple things. One is, so if someone says, hey, I think it's time, and, and based on consulting with my own vet, it clearly is time. So then when you put a call into Lap of Love, uh, you said there's a good handful here in Tampa. Does the, the Lap of Love office or whatever then sort of determine which vet that works, say, in Tampa would come to your house or is there? Yes. Okay. So, so the yes. person wouldn't necessarily request Dr. Jones just because they've read about Dr. Jones or maybe a friend of theirs dealt with Dr. Jones or, or could they do that? Oh, they, no, they could. Absolutely. You know, and we have, we have multiple families that have used us so many times that I, I there was one home I went to six different times. <laughs> so there, there are, there are families that definitely can absolutely do that. What, what you can think of us is, is almost like an OBGYN office. Whereas if you're having a baby, typically there's a group of five you know, or in our case, nine doctors. And in that moment that you need us, that whoever on call, you know, who's ever on call at that moment is going to be the, the person. You can absolutely request somebody. And if they're there, wonderful. Um, but sometimes also, again, this happens in a really short notice. So we just simply have to go with whatever doctor is on call. Yeah. Um, Makes sense. So, yeah, but I mean, we, we would, we love, as doctors, we love going back to the home again. Yeah. It gives us that fulfillment too. Right, and probably gives additional comfort to a family. It's like, well, we had oh, yeah. we had Doctor Jones before, and and they were terrific. And uh, so, um, yeah. as much as this is super difficult, this is a uh, um, so anyway. There's a string of uh, things coming. Out. I'm not sure I can get to all these, but one thing I will read is uh, says I worked for a human hospice organization in Tampa, and it was very rewarding. Many thanks to your guests for offering this service to pets. So, um, it is rewarding. Human hospice groups, nurses, teams are just amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. So this, this is a multiple part thing that I might not be able to get to and read just because it's a, it is a multiple part. So I will try to before the end of the show, but it's, it's an unusual way to present a question for our guests. So I, I'll, I'll do my best. But meanwhile, one of the things you talked about, things going on and whatever, I was curious, given the very nature and virtues of lap of love, how did the limitations of COVID affect things? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think just like everybody, when COVID hit, you know, we, we all just took everything day by day <clears throat> and it was a day by day functionality. And remember we're doctors, you know, we've all taken microbiology classes, safety classes. We all know what sterile technique is, you know, scrubbing into surgery and stuff. So we like, we're trained on that stuff. Yeah. So there was a lot of, of us as doctors getting together and saying, what can we do? What do we, you know, what are we going to do? Because my personality, if you can't tell, my personality is like, we're helping you guys. We are going to continue helping until we can't help anymore. I mean, I've gone out in hurricanes and tropical storms and all that. Like, I will just go, you know. And that's that's who we are as a team, too. So we just kind of, we, we, we would talk on a daily basis. What are we going to do? Obviously, masks and scrubs. And we don't typically wear scrubs to appointments because we don't want to look like doctors. We want to be a friend you know, coming in. Um, so we changed our protocols a little bit, but the other thing that none of us expected is that we blew up in, you know, in, in a, in a good way for business reasons, our requests just went through the roof because other clinics were closing and they weren't letting people inside the clinic with their pets anymore. So now you have somebody that's, you know, facing the euthanasia of their best friend. Oh, and wow. And they can't be there. Can't, you're being told you can't be there. Wow. Yeah. So, it was the busiest that we've ever been in our history um, was last summer, you know, yeah. right after COVID. And, and remember, we have doctors in 36 states. 
So, you know, it first hit us in New York and us having to decide what to do. And we, we had to put some limitations on the family or on the number of families that our doctors could see just because it was, you know, there was an hour after every appointment disinfecting everything, wiping everything down, making sure we're not taking that into the next home. Sure. So. Wow. Um, yeah, we just did our best. So how often do you still see patients and go out on these calls, Dr. McVitie? So that is an interesting question because I just had a baby. I have a two-year-old like you heard in the background. Yeah. And I just had another one three months ago, so I have another three months. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's um, number three and number four. Um, so, you know, my, my, my time is now, the vast majority of time is spent on the business. And um, so my position with the company is, is, is CEO right now. And I sure. have to Google a few times, what does a CEO do? Because sometimes I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> but I just, I, I say that facetiously. I mean, I, I love, I love helping other doctors do what we do. Yeah. Um, I also will never stop going into the homes. I love it. And I want to retire doing it. So right now, um, I typically I'll help family, friends, um, employees, you know, members of our team. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I, where I, I, I do now. The past couple of months, I haven't been able to do anything just because it's a baby. Yeah. Um, but it's still my, it's still my first passion. Right. Really and you I do, you do have, I think a fair number of managerial duties and other things, media appearances like this one, et cetera, that probably still keep you pretty busy, even if you're not necessarily going into homes the way you yeah. ordinarily would. So, uh, we touched on this a couple of times and I'm just really curious to find out how prevalent, because you, you flipped the philosophy kind of on its, on its side at the beginning of the conversation about what's being done for the family and, and therefore how the veterinarian in this case probably views it. But nonetheless, I'm still curious how prevalent burnout is amongst the lap of love veterinarians. Um, against our veterinarians, it's, it's extremely rare. Um, in fact, typically what brings veterinarians to us is burnout from clinical practice. So probably 99% of the doctors that join us are doing it because they are just, they're burned out of just typical clinical practice where in, in a clinic, your doctors are going to see anywhere from 30, 20 to 30 families plus per day. Um, with us, it's an average of anywhere from three to five. Wow. So yeah, it's, it's very different, but burnout in veterinary medicine is, 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 it's a, it's the real thing. I mean, we all get into veterinary medicine because we love animals and we want to help and we tend to extend ourselves very, very far and we tend to want to do the very best we can. And that doesn't always mean that on the other side, um, you know, we feel like we're doing a good job and, yeah. when, and, and we're all perfectionists, you know, that's part of, personality of a veterinarian is that we're we're highly perfectionist yeah and sometimes that that ends up us that ends up leaving us kind of drained at the end of the day um so it's a it's a it's a thing it's a thing that the profession is really trying to address holistically but it sounds like generally in in the world of lap of love the incidence of that is lower than the norm is that okay. again because of the work as you sort of described at the beginning of our conversation this morning here or is there a protocol that you guys have developed over the years to kind of help address and mitigate that even preemptively so that to, the, the, that kind of burnout that people might expect doesn't even have a chance to, to take hold. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. So in addition to what I mentioned before, just having the fulfillment, like where every single client is hugging us and saying, thank you for what you do, you know, which means the world to us. I mean, that is, that, that's, that's the vast majority of what brings us so much fulfillment and then really mitigates the burnout that we have in lab of love. But additionally to that is the fact that, you know, behind the, the scenes in lab of love, we're driving around in our own cars. We're not in a clinical practice where you have nurses and clients and callbacks and people saying, doc, what about this? Or, 
hey, this IV pump broke, what do I do? Or, hey, this client needs this. Or, hey, can you answer this question? Or, this family needs you to call them. You know, those things are very pulling to a doctor. Yeah. Particularly, again, a perfectionist, you know, where you want to do everything right. And so then at the end of the day, and this is a typical thing in veterinary medicine, like, if you're done at 5 o'clock, if your last appointment is at 5 o'clock, you don't leave until 7 o'clock. Yeah. I mean, our spouses are like, hey, what time are you going to get home? And we laugh. Like, what do you <laughs> know what time you're going to I don't know. I have no idea. Right. I'm pick, a num- pick a number because your guess is as good as mine, I guess, right? Yeah, no yeah. idea. Are you going to be home for dinner? I don't know. Are you going to be home to say goodbye to the kids, you know, before they go to bed? I don't know. Yeah. It's just, that, and that's a typical lifestyle in veterinary medicine. And that that's what makes it very, very difficult for us. But our, ours is, 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 is all that, you know, it's fulfillment. The gratitude from from families, the fact that we're alone in, in in our in our cars, which majority of veterinary medicine or veterinarians are introverted. That's a thing that mm. you know proved. Um, and so put that all together, and we just don't we don't have that type of burnout yeah. um, with this type of work. But again, there are lots of studies that you can that you can look out there, and and you know the the really tough interactions with clients. And I just got one off with a veterinarian twenty minutes ago. And it was the same thing with her. She's like, it's just so hard when you work so hard to make somebody happy. And, and I don't mean just the families, but sometimes it's the pet trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And you, your best intentions aren't fruitful enough. Right. It's just wow. very tough. Yeah. And especially I think we're starting to see a little bit of a profile driven, perfectionist, introverted. So we're getting our, uh, our sketch of uh, at least uh, <laughs> yeah. a common. It looks like. Yeah. So here's a couple more um, emails and or uh, text. One says, hello, I've used Lap of Love twice for our animals. It's a great service and was beautifully done in our own home. So that was nice. Now here's, here's, I just want to read at least the first part of that, that's, that, that sequence because, again, I'm not trying to get into the sequence, but I can, at the very least, I think, ask an important initial question. She says, good morning, Duncan. Could you please ask your guest if she is legally obligated to verify the condition of the pet? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what we're doing in the home is we're going into the home and then we're a physical exam. And look, if, if I go into a home and the pet's struggling to breathe with, you know, a, a illness, I there I don't have to do a full physical exam, you know, with a temperature and pulse and respiratory. You know what I mean? Like I don't, yeah. I'm not required to do that because as, as a veterinarian, I have eight years of college education and then that's just when I graduate. And then many more years of experience to know that when I look at a pet, is this pet ready for euthanasia or is it not? And not one of our doctors would euthanize a pet that they did not feel was the best thing for that pet. Yeah. All right. That's and, good to know. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. And, and, I, and I think it's also important to understand that, you know, there are euthanasia happens at an alarming rate in shelters simply because of space. Right. Yeah. So that's a different. We can't uh, forget that. Yeah. yeah. We can't forget that there's a big, broad spectrum of, of that. So when I'm working with clients that have loved pets like this, it's a full different thing. But absolutely, I've never euthanized a pet that I didn't feel it was a necessary and appropriate thing to do. Yeah. And that person asking that question, I did skin the other uh, uh, handful of, of texts that came in. And so I guess basically uh, there was some questioning of when they did have somebody come to the house, I guess, what, why they were doing this or was it clear that the situation called for that? And I guess mm-hmm. ultimately asking now because there's another dog who's 14 and nearing, uh, nearing his time. So I guess she's just trying to make sure she understands how the services work and, and and, uh, sure. and yeah. making sure that she's, you know, obviously doing the right thing on behalf of her uh, animals. So, so here's another uh, email. I'm so grateful to hear the vet speak about emotional issues versus money. Humans have all sorts of demands beyond budget to factor into a pet's care. 
So that's exactly right. And, um, and here on a more practical level is how do you handle taking away large animals after euthanasia? Um, so what we do in the home um, is that, and this is if the family wants us to handle cremation, the other option is if you wanted to bury at home. Obviously, we wouldn't have to handle it if you're burying at home. Um, but if we're taking the pet for cremation, then we have a large stretcher. It's kind of a, it's a flat stretcher, <clears throat> and we just simply place the pet on the stretcher, cover them with a blanket, and then when the family calls to schedule the appointment, we actually ask on that phone call, are you or someone else there able to help the doctor to the car? Mm. Uh, we go alone as doctors, so we don't have an additional help. Right. And majority of the times that the families want to help, they want to be the pallbearer for their pet. So then we place the pet in the car, um, and then we arrange for cremation. Um, now, if the family is not able to help, occasionally we help elderly people that, or maybe somebody just can't physically help. Then we call the crematory and, and arrange for them to meet us at the home, and then they help us remove the pet. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, let's take uh, let's take a call here. Hi, you're on Talking Animals, Dr. Danny McVitie. Hello. Hello. Go ahead. It's you, please. Uh, yes. Are you taking my call right now? I am. You're you're on the air currently with Dr. McVitie. Yes. Okay. Great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I am. Have had two at home euthanasias for pets, and I just uh, wanted to uh, mention the differences between the two. Uh, they were both cats, and then the first one in California, uh, the vet came and we spent about half an hour uh, with her and the pet, just her, you know, socializing with our pet. And then we, she told us what the process was going to be. And uh, I hear the program is still running. Is this online? I think you have your radio or your computer on at the same time you're speaking to us. Maybe if you could turn that down, you wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't hear this, okay. the other. I just the other wanted thing. to find my air. I just didn't know if I am. Yeah. Okay. So uh, my question is, uh, the first one came and and had this very lovely uh, uh, exchange with our animal and, uh, and us. And and then she did uh, ask us where we wanted to do the procedure and the whole thing. And it was a, and then she, when she did, finished, she went out and she came back in with a carrier for her to take our pet away. The second one was here in Florida, and it was very, very upsetting to, to us and a friend who came over. Uh, the vet came in. Oh, by the way, uh, the second one had me pay uh, six months in advance and then just call when I was going to come, when we wanted her to come. And this was the not second, lap of love, right? No. I don't want right, to okay. identify who it is. Oh, no, no, yeah, no, no need to do so. I think she was just verifying it wasn't uh, wasn't a lap of love that, yeah. yeah. The procedure was so vastly different. The experience was so vastly different. And it was really very, very um, upsetting when she came in. She literally chased the animal around the house trying to give him the sedative hmm. he was hiding and she pulled him out and gave him a sedative so that i mean she came in in five minutes did this we were standing there aghast then she took our animal and she put him on a table and uh, she put you know she euthanized him we sat we stood with him while she was not there uh, watching she was watching. and then uh you know it's very fast i i, I don't have any issues with the procedure except the manner in which the vet handles it. Yeah. But no. What I want to say is the second vet did something that I think was very uh, important to, to point out to, to people. Who are, to vet, when she came in to do this procedure, she brought in the, the carrier, and it's the carrier that she uses to take the dead animal. And, you know, pets can smell death in a second. Mm -hmm. And so this cat was freaked out. I can't, I can only think because not because the cat is very uh, people-oriented. The cat was like a famous cat, literally. Anybody who knows Ringo, the cat, Demon's Landing, he was very famous. 
He was in the newspaper and everything. She came in and she gave him this uh, injection. But as I say, he was freaked out and she uh, didn't have the sense. And I don't know about your stretcher or any of the other procedures that you recommend. I just want you to recommend that the vet not bring in a carrier, that they carried a dead animal out with. And no, you're right. Into- we, we don't do that. You are exactly right. And that's, and that's one of the reasons, not only for the pet, but just for the family too. You know, when I, I put myself in these situations, and I don't want to see when I first when I first meet the doctor and before my pet is, has has you know been euthanized. I don't want to see how you're taking them out. And not only that, but after after your pet has been euthanized, you know it's a really delicate moment for everybody. And that's why we actually you know confirm the passing. We stay there for just a couple seconds to make sure everything is smooth, and then we leave and we let the family have alone time, grieve in private, cry, you know, have that moment. And then a few minutes later, we come back in. And when we come back in, if the family has requested our help with cremation, that's when we bring in either the little basket, the cats and little dogs will, will ride in, or we bring in the, the larger stretcher. And, and even the stretcher we have covered with a blanket. We have a nice big fuzzy blanket that we put on it, you know, so it doesn't look that right. But you are exactly right. And that was that's not a very tactile way um, to do that. Even the, the paying ahead is very odd. That's... That's a, that's a very odd thing. I don't yeah. know anybody who does this work that requires that. All right. Okay, thank you well, for your call. I, I, don't how, I don't know how to, quote, report to it because she practices uh, all over the, the Tampa Bay area. And, you know, she's one of the recommended ones to go online. And uh, I didn't ever have this conversation with her directly. But I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, there's a veterinary board here, I presume. And uh, in fact, uh, I want to stay after this in uh, Tallahassee. Is that right? There is, you know, and you'd have to dive into the actual specifics of, of what happened to know if she did anything wrong. Just from this conversation, I actually don't know that anything was done wrong. But wrong is different than um, not uh, stylistically uh, inappropriate, exactly. to say the least. Yeah. Not appropriate. Okay, okay caller. Right. I'm sorry. We do have to run. We're just about at the end of our time. But thank you for your call. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Dr. McVita, yeah, that, I mean, geez, even a healthy cat, as far as I know, if you bring a carrier out, uh, like, all hell breaks loose. So, I, I mean, I don't think that, I mean, that's best case scenario. So, we have just about reached the end of our time. We've been speaking with Dr. Danny McVitie, Lap of Love Veterinary Hospice co-founder. The website to find their help or services or more information is lapoflove.com. And Dr. McVitie, of course, does a lot of speaking and other things and writing and is featured in articles and stuff all the time. So she has a website as well, Dr. Danny, D-A-N-I, McVitie, M-C-V-E-T-Y dot com. So Dr. McVitie, thanks. Well, there's other stuff, of course, we didn't get into, but we got to know, I think, a lot of really helpful, valuable things for a lot of folks listening. So I really appreciate your time, as always. Thank Mm -hmm. you so much. Yeah, thank you, Duncan. Thank you. Bye-bye. In a moment, we'll hear from Hillsborough State Attorney Andrew Warren about the former CEO of a nonprofit called Soaring Paws, a con man named Albert Adams, who perpetrated fraud multiple times on dog owners and recently received a serious prison sentence along with 10 years of probation. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a piece by Josh Gondelman, who's additionally a noted comedy writer. This is We Adopted a Pug from Josh Gondelman in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. I had a pretty good 2017, despite 2017, and I'm here to tell you a little bit about it. My wife and I adopted a dog that's very exciting for us. Yeah, oh, thank you. She's a pug, so scientifically she shouldn't even exist, so every day's a miracle with our little dumpling. 
If you can't imagine a pug from the name of the breed, it's one of those dogs. Looks like a loaf of white bread with a face smushed onto the front slice and a butt smushed onto the back slice. And if you've never hung out with a pug before, it's kind of like if that loaf of bread came some of the way to life. That's her vibe. She's so cute. I love her so much. Her name is Busy, but it wasn't always. When we adopted her, her name was Daisy, but we didn't like that, so we switched it to Busy, which is very rude of us. Because when we adopted our dog, she was eight years old. You guys get that's middle age for a dog. That's like meeting a 56-year-old human and going, what's your name, Deborah? Nah. I'm gonna go ahead and call you Barbara. Hope that works for you. I mean, you better be cool with it, because I control all the food and water, and you're too small to reach the doorknob, so... Anyway, Babs, I was thinking... Let's get you into your Halloween costume. And yes, I know it's January, but I'm sad right now, so for the next several hours, you're going to be a ladybug. That was Josh Gondelman in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called We Adopted a Pug, taken from a television appearance. Now it's time to hear my conversation with Hillsborough State Attorney Andrew Warren about the recent sentencing of Albert Adams, and uh, we'll get the details from him. So this is State Attorney Andrew Warren on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, State Attorney Warren. Good morning, Duncan. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you so much for joining us on Talking Animals. So... Let's dive right in. How did you first become aware of Mr. Adams? Was there a, a report on him and or soaring paws that came to your office, or how did this begin? Right. So we first became aware of Mr. Adams back in 2018. Uh, he was being investigated and then prosecuted for defrauding donors to his charity. It was called Soaring Paws, and it was supposed to be used to fly abused animals to new homes. Instead, he was skimming some money off the top to pay for his personal expenses. So he was still flying abused animals to new homes, but he wasn't being uh, using all the money for that charitable purpose. So he ended up on probation uh, from that crime back in 2018, and then we had, I guess, the privilege of dealing with him again uh, just recently. And that privilege, uh, as it were, that's uh, definitely in heavy air quotes, um, ended up with a, a significantly different result because of, his, uh, because of his very history, I guess. Yeah, that's right. I, I guess the listeners couldn't hear my air quotes, but thank you. Yeah. yeah well, I announced around, mine just to be safe. So, thank you. Yeah, well, that, yeah. So this time around, what he ended up doing was uh, he was filing a uh, claims for pet insurance for medical services that were never performed. Just as one example, he was claiming that uh, his wife's dog received uh, MRI uh, scan from a facility that doesn't even own an MRI machine. So he ended up submitting about uh, $13,000 uh, worth of payments that he received back from the pet insurance provider. And we were able to prove that he was fraudulent. So now he's actually spending some time behind bars. And what sort of threshold has to be met for your office to take action? I mean, this sounds pretty egregious, especially when he already gotten in trouble and then came up with, I guess, a new wrinkle on how to defraud people. But, but how does that rise to the level of something your office would, would uh, dive into? Well, anytime people are stealing or lying or cheating and getting money for it, it's uh, a case that's worthy of prosecution. And here, this was particularly uh, appealing to us to go after him and and to go after him aggressively because he was taking advantage of people who love dogs. Yeah. I mean, he was preying on the huge hearts of dog lovers. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's another fraud, and he's actually got another case pending uh, just an hour south of us in a different jurisdiction where it's sort of the same M.O., 
where he's really just trying to scam people out of money who love pets, who love dogs, and then line his own pockets with it. So, you know, the first time when he got into some trouble, probation was the appropriate response. Uh, This time, however, we took a far more aggressive stance, and he's spending time in prison now. So that raises, I guess, two questions in my mind, at least. First, is it just kind of fraud and these kinds of things that your office would handle? So, for example, animal neglect or cruelty cases would not necessarily be pursued in in your office? No, Duncan, that's a great question. Actually, the state attorney's office here, we prosecute just about every crime you can imagine. Okay. From low-level traffic offenses to serial killings and everything in between. So, uh, you know, I'm a dog lover, a dog owner. Um, and we have taken a, an aggressive stance against people who abuse animals here. Okay. Uh, we had the, the case from a couple of years ago where people were, you know, the shark dragging case that gained some yeah. national and international notoriety. For sure. Basically, where people are abusing animals, it's just horribly unethical, it's criminal, and the type of person who would do that is often the type of person who is going to commit some other violent defense in our community. So we have no tolerance for that, and those are the types of cases that we're aggressively prosecuting. Okay, so so some of those awful hoarding cases or neglect cases and things that also make headlines that happen in your area would indeed be something that you guys would and, and do prosecute. That's right. Look, if you're looking to harm animals, and especially dogs in Hillsborough County, you yeah. think twice because you're going to end up behind bars. Came to the wrong place, pal. Yeah. So to what extent does this sentence along those lines then that was handed down to Mr. Adams function kind of as an example like, hey, mess with dog lovers like this and you too could go to prison and, and have a big probation term sort of behind that as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was sentenced to, he, he's going to do 15 months uh, in Florida State Prison and then he's got 10 years of probation behind that. So if he doesn't stay on the straight and narrow once he gets out in 15 months, he's looking at another 10 years hanging over his head. Yeah. That's for, again, you know, you're, you're preying on the hearts of, of dog lovers and you're trying to defraud people who are uh, trying to do good things for our community and to help pets and help dogs and help animals. Yeah. We're not going to look kindly on it. Yeah. Well, his track record is, uh, it's hard to know how to place that bet, but uh, maybe the 10 years uh, staring him in the face will be enough to uh, deter him. So, uh, so State We're Attorney Andrew. And if not, then he'll, he'll be going back to prison. Right. I have no doubt at this point. So that's, that's great. He, he doesn't know who he's up against, I guess, uh, or he still hasn't quite realized. So, so State Attorney Andrew Warren, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to explain this case. And, and again, I hopefully uh, do this example is, is indeed a deterrent to others who would do the same thing to, dog lovers and other animal lovers. So thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah, I'm Duncan Strauss. You're listening to Talking Animals coming up at, on WNF. The music kicks back in with Scott Elliott from noon to 3 p.m. Three glorious hours of music followed by Sam Wall with yet another three hours of music. And we just keep the music coming as we roll into our block of Latin programming this evening and beyond. Meanwhile, on this show, as the prize for Name That Animal Tune, I'll be offering something fabulous from the Talking Animals Vault to the first person who calls 813-239-9663 correctly identifies this animal song. It's Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals on WNF.
right, if you can name that animal, Tim, we'll take your guests off the air after we finish the show because we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WNF Tampa. Next Wednesday, my guest will be Kristen Hassan, a uh, veteran of the shelter world and highly revered for her work and innovations there, and now leads a group called Human Animal Support Services based in her other organization, American Pets Alive, and the aim of this uh, newer organization is to transform animal services and sheltering and just make improvements all the way around. So I look forward to speaking with her. She's been on the show in a different capacity in the past. Excellent. So uh, go to TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we ever broadcast and links to our social media pages, all kinds of other information. You can also sign up for our newsletter to find out about Talking Animals guests couple of days beforehand and all kinds of other news in the talking animals world so that's all found at talkinganimals.net i'm duncan trust thanks very much for listening have a good week be kind animals be kind others be kind yourself this is talking animals on wmnf tampa brandon clearwater largo wikiwachi and beyond stay tuned after npr news headlines we got the fabulous scott elliott for three hours and then samuel for three more after that We'll see you next Wednesday at 11 a.m. on Talking Animals on WMNF. Thanks.